From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. I'm going to uh, dive in this morning because I want to make sure we have time to get everything accomplished. There's a phrase in our culture that if I say it, it's, it's almost become a modern proverb, and I bet most of you could finish it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed or destined to repeat it. That's George Santayana. It's not scripture, but it kind of is. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, in talking to this young Corinthian church, says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. Why? Why does he not want them to forget? Because the Apostle Paul understands this principle. Those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. We talk about vision all the time in our lives. It comes up in church. It comes up in business meetings. And everybody has cool slogans. It comes up in in business, modern marketplace business. And it's always talked about in terms of future forward, looking at what's to come, looking at what we're going to do, where we're going to go. But I would love to submit to you that that's not the only way vision is derived. Sometimes vision is derived by looking at the history of how God has dealt with his people and learning from it. In fact, I would say vision is necessary for success in our life. Proverbs 29 says, without vision, people cast off restraint. That word vision there means divine revelation, divine guidance. It's a word from the Lord. To cast off restraint would be akin to the idea of taking your hands off the handlebars in the bike and just letting it take us where it wants to. It's to let go of the mechanisms that control direction. Without divine guidance, that's what we do. And for this reason, I would love to submit to us that becoming students of the text and being being disciplined to look into the scriptures and study the history of God with his people isn't just something that makes us a good believer. It's actually necessary for life and success because unless we learn how God has dealt with people, we are more than likely going to repeat their mistakes. And Paul knows this. And so in chapter 10, he takes this young Corinthian church into the history of of Israel for the purpose of coaching what he sees in their lives. And He says, God guided all of them. He's talking about the children of Israel by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them. He brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. And all of them ate the same miraculous food and all of them drank the same miraculous water for they all drank from the miraculous rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. Paul just runs through a list that's crazy if you really stop to think about it. Think about the miraculous nature of the presence of God that they were accustomed to, they were used to seeing. I mean, most of us probably know this, we understand our Bible history, but in case we don't, let me just walk through it really quick. Their children of Israel are captives in, in Egypt, their slave labor more than likely 
and largely considered to be the people that built a lot of the modern wonders that we see, a lot of the pyramids, a lot of these things. It was, Egypt had a pattern of, of enslaving people and then using their labor because, well, it's cheaper. And so the Egyptians for multiple generations Generation after generation after generation, they've been enslaved. All they know is slavery. And then there's a moment where the word of the Lord is spoken. And the Lord says, I want you to put the blood over the doorpost of your homes. And I want you to put it on the top and on the sides. And every house I see marked this way, I will spare. And every house that's not, I'll take the firstborn. And in a moment, in an evening, God takes the firstborn out of Egypt. And he spares the children of Israel. And this begins... this. This incredible process, and we study history, and there's, there's, there's all kinds of snapshots and moments. There's moments where, where Moses stands before Pharaoh, and he performs sign and wonder, and the, the Nile turns to blood, and, and there's, there's frogs everywhere, and there's all this craziness. There's lice everywhere, and God just keeps performing miracle after miracle after miracle to, for his people. And eventually, the Pharaoh says, get out. I... I need you out. It's clear that you guys are the source of my problems. And so he releases the children of Israel, and probably because of divine stupor, he does it. As soon as they leave, he realizes, that's not going to work. My economy just crashed because now I don't have free labor. And he amasses his army and says, go get them. Children of Israel, they're out. They're heading out of Egypt, and they come upon the Red Sea, and they've got an army coming in behind them. And the reality is they don't have time to get around the sea because if they get around the sea, this is a large group of people in the millions. And if to get around the sea means the army's going to catch up and there's certain doom. And so they don't know what to do and they freak out. And the Lord whispers to Moses, just put your staff into the water. He puts the staff into the water. And Paul talks about it here. The waters pile up and they don't just pile up. We could imagine if the water piled up in the ocean, it would be thick and murky mud in the bottom because the water table is still there. But no, because the Lord speaks in a moment and he says to creation, move, water moves, every molecule moves, every molecule moves and it dries out instantly and they walk across dry ground. I'd love to push pause and say some of you are facing things in your life. You're looking at it saying, this is impossible. I'd just love to encourage you. It's not impossible. All that you need is a word from the Lord. And the moment he speaks, creation aligns and that it's over. Amen. So stop believing your circumstances are impassable. They move on. They come through on dry ground and they're still freaked out. They still haven't figured out that God's with them. And so they cry out, how do we know God's with us? He's like, you know what I'll do? I'll send a pillar of cloud for you. During the daytime, there'll be a vertical cloud that will go where you go. And at night, it'll shift to fire. So you know I'm with you all the time. But what about food? We're hungry. I'm going to provide that too. Every morning, there'll be manna for you. You go walk out, you pick it up, you eat. The next day, you walk out, you pick it up, you eat. Love to push pause and say, just so you understand, the intention of heaven is that you every day feed from what the Lord gives you. Time in the scriptures, time with him. It's not supposed to last five days. It's supposed to be new every morning because his faithfulness is new every morning. The intention of the Lord is that we sit before him. We derive our existence from that time with him. And you wonder why the word of the Lord goes sour in our lives at times. It's because we're not daily feeding. We're hoping the word of the Lord will last us for a week or two. They're thirsty. Paul talks about it. The Lord supernaturally sends a rock that shows up everywhere they go. Same rock. Never dawns on anybody that rocks don't move. They just realize the same rock's here all the time. 
and water comes out of it. Paul says that rock was Jesus. What I want to establish is that these people lived with an experiential understanding of the miraculous power of God. And they walked in the gift of his incredible leadership, provision, and protection. And then the next verse happens. Yet, after all of this, God was not pleased with most of them. And he destroyed them in the wilderness. And these events happened as a warning to us so that we will not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. Yet, after all of this, the root word meaning here is in contradiction to these things. It's the idea of something that is inappropriately out of sorts. The example would be the Israelites should have been pleasing to the Lord, yet they were not. And the reason they weren't pleasing, Paul gives, and he says, because they, they craved evil things. And the literal translation means to live for their soulish appetites. It's the idea of desi desiring something at a soul level, which we already know to be outside of our covenant relationship with God. In essence, what Paul's saying is they wanted what they wanted, so they did it. They had a sin craving and they chased it. This phrase, worshiping idols, the second thing, he says they, they craved evil things and they worshiped idols. And the worshiping of idols, in our, it, it seems like an antiquated term. It doesn't make sense. Maybe you grew up in more Pentecostal environments like I did and, and I was taught that my TV was an idol and so, you know everything was an idol. I just want to simplify what idolatry is biblically. It is to surrender control of our decisions and desires to anyone or anything other than God. To surrender control. And Paul goes on and says, For the scriptures say the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual morality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did. For that's why God sent his angel of death to destroy them. All of these things happened to them as examples for us. This phrase, pagan revelry, another phrase that feels antiquated. It, it's outdated. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to give you a phrase in our culture that perfectly describes pagan revelry and you'll know what it means. The phrase is YOLO. You only live once. At the root of pagan revelry was this attitude. Because I only live once, I'm going to get what I want now. I'm going to go after what matters to me now. Who cares about the future? Future's not promised. I don't have tomorrow promised. So I'm going to live today for what I want. That's pagan revelry in its simplest form. And it's counter to living with vision. Paul talks about sexual immorality. Do not engage in sexual immorality. And he, in each one of these, we're going to highlight real quickly, Paul goes into historical stories. Out of, out of Numbers 25, it says, When the Israelites were camped at Acacia, some of the men defiled themselves by sleeping with the local Moabite women. And these women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, and soon the Israelites were feasting with them and worshiping the gods of Moab. Before long, Israel was joining in the worship of Baal Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. 
Baal Peor is a god, it's, it's a god of the Canaanites, it's a god of this, this region, and as Israel comes out of Egypt, they encounter these people who worship these gods, and Baal Peor was a fertility god, and all these people believed in, in different practices, and some of which were, they believed they should have sex with random people, and thus mirror what they wanted the gods to do, so they wanted all the gods to have sex, so they would have fertile crops, and they would have rains, that's what they believed brought fertility to their lands, and so this is happening all around Israel, Israel's seeing this, and the men follow suit. They come in, they see the Moabite women, they're, they're, they're new to them, and so they like what they see, so they just walk away from their covenant relationship, and guys, I want to push pause and say something. As men, I want to talk to men, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it completely or not, the reality is that Scripture says we are heads of our households. And there's a thing that happens here that's really, really important for us to notice. The men of Israel move into sin, and the next thing that happens is their families follow. And there's a sobering truth in this, we set the tone for our homes as men. We move into things that are outside a covenant and we wanna believe those secrets are hidden. They're just ours. They only affect us. And the reality is what we have done is we've opened a door into our households and we've invited our whole family to follow us headlong into this. That's the truth about leadership. And this is what happens here. So within a short amount of time, these guys move from sexual encounter to now they're worshiping the false gods. I would say this, the pattern of immorality, please hear me. There's a pattern to immorality. It might begin with sexual sin. It will always lead us away from a relationship with God and will lead us into false gods. We think it's no big deal. It's a big deal. The root word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 for immorality is defined as any sexuality or lust contrary to God's word. Can I say something strong like I already haven't? <laughs> it is unholy mixture to embrace the name of God and the ways of sin. To say I belong to you and then partner with sin. It's an unholy mixture And Paul's point for this young church, y'all are going to lose your way if you follow immorality. There's no safe amount to allow. We live in a culture that is so rampant. There's so many tiny little micro places. Social media, it's easy to get sucked into it. Church, I just want to say there is no amount that's safe. It all has a death penalty connected to it. Purity matters. Paul goes on and says, nor should we put Christ to the test. And he pulls a story out of Exodus 17. And the, the story in Exodus 17 is that the people of Israel enter a difficult moment in their, journey, in their journey following God because they're thirsty and there appears to be no water. Now they've already seen so much of the miraculous happen. They've already seen so much of the provision. I, I, I want to believe in my life, if I saw water stack up and ground dry in a moment, it'd probably, I'd be good for life. I'm like, yeah, I can remember that for the rest of my life. I want to believe that, but the reality is, because I'm a human being, I doubt that's the truth. Because it seems to be hardwired into us to consistently doubt his goodness, and this is what they do in this moment. They're thirsty, so they move into an immediate response. They doubt the goodness of God. They grumble and complain at him, and the question they asked was, is he gonna take care of us or not? That question instantly becomes familiar for us. 
because we realize there are moments in our life where we really, really struggle and we doubt he's going to take care of us. The root word here is to chide. It's the idea to be in both an ungrateful and adversarial position towards someone. And it's deeply connected to entitlement and offense. In our vernacular, I would term it this way. It's like us looking at God going, really? This is how you're going to treat me? There's a caution in this. Any attitude of ungratefulness needs to be vetted in us because ungratefulness gives us permission to complain against his leadership. I get it. I know how strong that statement is. Ungratefulness opens a door that is incredibly dangerous. We complain against his leadership, and that complaint becomes a declaration that what we really believe is he's not perfect, he's not holy. And it positions us for greater difficulty. That is the story of Scripture. So these people died of snake bites. Why? Why snake bites? Catch this. Because God used the very partnership they were exampling against them. When we partner with the enemy, heaven takes notice. Ungratefulness is a partnership with hell. So we should probably not do that. And Paul adds one more time, uses a word that seems like he's being redundant. He says, yeah, and don't grumble as some of them did. He's like, wait, I thought this is what you just said. Numbers 14, it's a different moment in Scripture that Paul connects to. He says, then all the people began weeping aloud and they cried all night and their voice rose in great course of complaint against Moses and Aaron. And it's easy to misunderstand it out of context, so let me set the context God has called Israel to take a promised land, and so he shows them where the promised land is, and they send 12 spies, 12 of their own. They send their strong military guys. Go check it out and go see what's over there. Go, let's go investigate what God's invited us to do. The 12 go, 10 come back and say, yeah, it's a beautiful place, but there's some really big dudes over there, and we should not go. Two of them come back and say, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what's over there, because if he's with us, nobody's against us. And so the people side with the ten, and they begin to raise their voice, and they complain. And what they're doing is they're responding to a task that God has put in front of them. He's called them to this land that has giants to slay, and so what they do is they doubt his ability to perform his word. And what they're saying is, no way, I'm not going, this is nuts. You have ill intentions for us. The root word is to stop. It's to be obstinate, to hold a grudge, to remain in a place of stubbornness. So Paul highlights this for one reason. And we need to understand this. The size of the task that God's put in front of us is simply an invitation to trust him. Failure to believe he'll grant us what we need is rooted in a lack of trust. I have a question. How do you see what these people have seen? How do you experience the presence of God as they've experienced the presence of God? How do you witness God's provision like they did and yet still crave evil and live in idolatry? Because they allowed the culture they were in to speak louder than the character of God. And God was not pleased, so he destroyed them. 
I'm not trying to preach doom and gloom. I'm just saying I think it'd be really arrogant to assume that his standard for them is different than his standard for us. What do we learn from this? The four quick things for you. God was not pleased with their behavior, which should clue us in to a reality. There's a heavenly expectation that as we walk in greater encounters with his presence, we move into greater discipline in our lives. Which means the more we're standing in a room experiencing the presence of God, the more of the miraculous we're seeing, the more provision we're seeing, the expectation of heaven is that we're walking and growing in discipline. We're not allowing those encounters to give us an entitlement to be loose and carefree with our life. Second thing I see is the natural byproduct of our trust in him is obedience to what he wants. And that draws blessing into our lives. In fact, that's his heart to bless us. There's so many of us that get confused about the blessing of God. I would just say it's his heart to bless us. That's his heart for his kids. But there's a converse to this that we need to look at. The natural byproduct of distrust is disobedience. So really, when I'm disobedient to him, it means I don't trust him enough to live as he said. And unfortunately, that invites scarcity and difficulty into our lives. And a lot of us have walked in scarcity and difficulty, and we've blamed it on the Lord instead of looking in the mirror and asking the question, where am I not aligning with what he said? Third thing, there's an incredible danger in walking in the experience of the power of God, declaring ourselves to be his, and yet allowing unholy mixture in our lives. Just in case we're not clear on unholy mixture, unholy mixture comes when we're soft on sin and we make room for appetites and desires that are contrary to his word. And there's an interesting reciprocal story in Numbers 25. It's a story of Phineas, the son, grandson of Aaron. And he sees this Moabite immorality happen right in front of him. And so it's broad daylight. Instead of waiting for the cover of darkness, an Israelite man just grabs the closest hot Moabite woman he can find and he just takes her back to his tent right there in front of everybody. All the kids are playing, all the women are out, all the leadership's out. And he just kind of arrogantly, like, you know, men can do at times when they're not following Jesus, where they just become jerks. He just kind of arrogantly walks her into his tent and they move into immorality. And Phineas sees it and he jumps up and he grabs his spear and he rushes to the tent and he plants his spear through the back of the man and through the woman. And the scriptures say that instantly the anger of the Lord stopped. It's an interesting story because what it teaches us is that we realize our king is looking for those who will live his moral vision with passion and zeal and those people move his heart in fact that passion for purity can change God's heart towards a region because in a moment his anger stopped towards Israel so when we begin to live with a moral purity and a moral, we live God's standard, what happens is we influence our city, we influence our nation, we influence our neighborhood, we influence our home, that it supernaturally moves the heart of God on the behalf of the places that we're planted because we as his sons and daughters and agents of his moral values are establishing his kingdom in those places. For this reason, purity matters. Purity is not about making sure we don't get in trouble. It's about establishing the heart passion of our king where we go. 
We could say it this way. Purity and revival are inextricably linked. We cannot cry out for the more of the Lord to invade a region without being willing to say we will be the people that will stand in holiness. The last thing I want to share this morning. Declared ungratefulness is partnership with the enemy. It's rooted in the enemy's nature as an accuser and it should have no place in the people of God. It needs to be repented of because it robs our king of the honor and the trust he is due. Declared ungratefulness. What's coming out of our mouth? Are we grateful? Are we thankful? Do we honor him? Or do we allow the things in life that, dif- that are difficult, that frustrate us, to so consume us that it becomes the diatribe that comes out of our mouths? My question is, for us is, where's my heart at? Am I, am I a champion for what matters to God? Am I in a place of criticism or complaint towards him? Am I walking in any mixture? Is there any immorality or softness towards sin in me? Look, I know we live in a day and age where having a stance against sin, saying sin is sin, is really not popular. Popularity was never what we were called to. What we were called to is to, with grace and love, live the standard of our king. I want to take bread and cup this morning. So let's stand. We'll go a little bit over. I apologize for that. I'm still learning how to do this again. Because for Paul, with this young Corinthians church, there's only one answer. If those things are are going on in us, we need to repent, change what is wrong, and learn from history. Because the beautiful reality is, if we learn from history, we avoid those mistakes, there's an incredible favor that impacts our lives. There's tables at the front and the back. We'll bring some music up. I want to, friendship groups, family units, alone, whatever you feel like is most appropriate for you. If you're new here and bread and cup is a new idea, it's just simply remembering the cross, the body and the blood. We have family members standing at the back. There's a little prayer room back there. If, if you're confused on it and you're like, I need somebody to just kind of help me understand what this is, it'd be our honor. Just make your way back there. I promise you we won't sing you any songs or make you identify yourself or anything. You get to be... But I don't want to lose this moment, which is we need to evaluate our hearts and ask the question. Maybe it's a good moment to kind of re-up and say, you know what, it's time to set the standard again. It's time to put a line in the sand and say, there's some things in my life the Holy Spirit's dealing with and they got to stop. I'm going to repent of those. There's some things coming out of my mouth that have to stop. I need to repent of those. There's a lack of gratitude and I need to fix that. Father, we stand before you this morning always humbled at your word, always challenged by the weight of it, the strength of it. And in this moment right now, it's a holy moment. We've established a place for you to deal with our hearts. So we would ask that you would come as we celebrate the bread and the cup, as we remember the sacrifice you gave on the cross, the way you endured hardship and you took the punishment so we could have this moment to say, oh God, I'm sorry. And your answer is, it's cool. I forgive you. It's just mind-blowing to me. We don't want to make light of it. We just want to stand in the, 
incredible awesomeness of that. But search our hearts, Lord. For addictions, we cry out for conviction, Lord. For sin patterns, I cry out for conviction right now. Lord, for an ingratitude and an infighting in our spirits, we just cry out for conviction that there would be a fresh purity from heaven released in this place. All right, let's take bread and cup. Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at vintagecitychurch.com.